morning. Um, we're continuing along in our series, The Gospel of Luke, Gospel Revolution. Uh, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, there's a bl- Bible in the chair in front of you. It's a blue Bible. And you're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke, which is in the New Testament. There's two major divisions of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testaments. And Luke is the third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. So that's where we are this morning. Who of you came from a small town? Small town. Just one or two of us. I think if you're from the Cape, you need to raise your hand too. I, I mean, I'm from <laughs> Chicago. Yeah, I'm not a small town. Don't talk about it. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with a little hometown pride. If you grew up in the context of a smaller town, you, you, you get the fun, uh, the atmosphere of going to high school football games and homecoming parades. Uh, you, you remember just all of the festivities where the community would come together. You were told to keep your business local, right? We know that expression, keep it local. Uh, because, you know, the corporations come in and they make all kinds of money, but we want to keep our money back home. Now, you probably feel this, again, if you grew up in the Cape and you have some affinity for your home village, whether that would be Centerville or Falmouth, Osterville, etc. Now, I don't get this at all, okay? I am a a wash ashore, and I'm a recovering city dweller. I grew up in the Chicagoland area. Um, But I got to tell you, okay, growing up in the city... Not a huge fan, actually. Um, If you've ever lived in the city, you might vehemently disagree with me, but all the food and culture and things, I'm like, you can keep it. Like that traffic and and the mass of people, and, and you can't go and look at trees. Come on, guys. Now, Jesus came from a small town. He, he grew up in the city of, or the town of Nazareth, population 400. Um, Nazareth was a settlement that the Jewish people had put down after a Jewish exile some 200 years before Jesus came. There was a time where Galilee was inhabited by Israel, but at this time it became known as Galilee of the Gentiles. And so with the colonial mindset, this town sank roots and What towns like this tend to do is they have these strong tendencies to be politically, culturally, religiously self-conscious. They were populists and nationalists. We here in Nazareth, we're good Jewish people, was the mindset. And you also know that if you grew up in a small town, that when one of the local boys or one of the local girls becomes a popular sensation, one of your homegrown people, that's a big deal. Look with me at Luke chapter uh, 4, verses 14 and 15, and we'll see that they have one of those homegrown heroes. Verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all of the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, That word in verse 14, report, carries with it the idea of spreading fame going on through the countryside. 
one of the big forms of entertainment in Jesus' day was public speaking. You've heard people use the phrase, he or she has a soapbox issue. Well, that comes from a time period like this when in marketplaces, speakers used to stand up and, and, and wow people with their rhetorical skills and maybe because they've traveled, they're bringing in new ideas to an area. Well, if anybody had that, Jesus had it more because not only was he a great speaker, but he had a spiritual depth and a, a power where he was performing miracles in Capernaum that was, were mesmerizing the people of that place. Well, Nazareth starts seeing these reports and they think, well, why isn't the local boy come here and benefit us a little bit with all of this stuff that he's doing? And so they invite the local city leaders, invite Jesus to come and speak at the synagogue. Look there at verse 16. It tells us that he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Now, uh, anybody here seen the movie Million Dollar Baby? dollar baby. <laughs> wow, kind of like the first service. I was saying in the first service, wow, man, you're really hit, connecting with people today, hitting at home. No one's seen this movie. Guys, it was directed by Clint Eastwood. Come on. We gotta, this, this is like a big national seller. No one's seen it. It's a great movie. Uh, one of the main plots around it is Maggie Fitzgerald, who's played by Hilary Swank, is this small town girl who claws her way up to the top in world's uh, women's boxing. And anytime that a person has a meteoric rise like this, two things tend to happen. Well, on one end, they, they tend to have notoriety and, and, and money come their way. And at the same time, while that's happening, there are those who come around them because they want to live vicariously through their fame and maybe get a little hand in the dipping pot of the money. In the case of Maggie, you see that her formerly disinterested family who had nothing to do with her rising in the world of boxing suddenly becomes her biggest fans and wants to be a part of her life. Uh, The scene you see there is after Maggie has become paralyzed due to a cheap shot in the boxing match, and her mom essentially asks her to put a pin in her mouth and sign over her fortune to her. Now, this is a similar dynamic to what we see happening here in Nazareth. Jesus is a hometown hero, and and to put it in modern-day parlance, he's going viral all throughout the region. Uh, The fame, the accolades that are building in Jesus, now his hometown wants to live vicariously. They want to share in the spoils. But Jesus has to make something pretty clear to them when he comes home. While he loves his hometown, he is not going to exclusively be a hometown hero. Look at the next part of the verses. He, he asks for them to bring out the scroll of Isaiah. And it says here that he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. 
Now what's happening here is Jesus is reading from Isaiah. He reads from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And then he also inserts Isaiah 58, 6 into the reading and he cuts out a little bit of the Isaiah text. When he sat down, there was in the synagogue a, a stone chair that the preacher would sit down upon and that would be when he would start his message. So verse 21 is the first words of his message. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and it would have sent a shockwave through the room. Okay? Because essentially Jesus is saying right there, I am the Messiah. I am the one that God sent into the world to effect this change. Although local Nazarenes seem initially to appreciate what he has to say, you see there in verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And it would have been a gracious sounding sermon because of the four groups of people that he talks about from that Isaiah text. Now, when Jesus communicates that, we understand today that he was meaning or referring to the spiritual realities behind these things. But he identifies these four groups. He identifies the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. And, and the spiritual reality behind those things is, you know, the poor represents those who are spiritually poor, who come to God and say, I don't have anything in my hand I need. The captive represents those who are held into some form of spiritual bondage, whether that would be the bondage of money or the bondage to Satan or bondage to guilt or bondage to lust or, or bondage to, to hatred. And Jesus is saying that I've come into the world to loosen these chains of bondage. The blind are those who can't see God's work in the world. The oppressed are, the root idea of oppressed is broken in pieces or shattered or crushed. So essentially Jesus is saying, I am coming to those of you who have been crushed by life's circumstances. Now, who doesn't need a message like this? But you have to understand something here. The Nazarenes, when they're hearing this message, aren't hearing it through the lens of a spiritual application. They're hearing it through a populist nationalist lens you see they believed and they were told this from childhood that the messiah would free them from their oppressors and establish them as a worldwide ruling kingdom and so while they think that jesus's words are gracious they're also sitting there listening to this and saying you know something's not quite right about this message when jesus read Isaiah 61 2, I'm going to put it on the screen for you. You'll notice that he reads the first part of the passage to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But here's the deal for the Nazarenes he left out the best part. He didn't say the second part of the verse. And the day of vengeance of our God. Why did they view that as the best part? Well, because they believed that that was talking about Messiah coming and, and vindicating them and, and bringing vengeance upon their political enemies. You've heard the expression, familiarity breeds contempt. The idea there is that 
The better you think you know a person, the more difficult it is to accept that person as being anything more than ordinary. And so as they hear this, they start speaking to one another in a contemptuous way. Is he not Joseph's son? You know, basically, he, he didn't hit the Nazarene talking points, so now suddenly they're saying, you know, we really don't need to hear this guy speak anymore. Why don't we just get down to the miracles here? Well, maybe somewhere along the way you've heard this uh, characterization of Jesus where he's this kind of meek, passive, spiritual leader with his head in the clouds all the time. And i got to tell you, this story will disabuse you of that notion, okay? Listen to this. Step into the room for a moment. Okay, what happens when you're sitting in a room of hardcore, ardent, fundamentalist patriots with a populist, nationalist tendency that has been uh, ingrained in them from the time they're children, and, and you attack one of their core values. I'll tell you what happens. They'll kick your teeth in. And uh, if, if you, you think that Jesus is passive and mild, just listen to what he says to them next. He says, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. So let's just be clear here. Jesus cites two of their most famous prophets in Old Testament history, and he says, Elijah and Elijah had to go to your political enemies because they demonstrated a better quality of faith than you are demonstrating right now. I mean, talk about pulling the pin out of the grenade and just lobbing it into the middle of the room. Now we see that this crowd that was so excited and throwing you know, all kinds of parties and celebration that the hometown hero Jesus was coming in, this superficial homecoming parade now turns into a murderous mob. Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. And then we see in verse 31, somehow, the text doesn't tell us, maybe it was miraculously, Jesus just walks right through them and he goes about his messianic mission. We need to be asking the question, what in the world is happening here? What's going on? Why do we go from local celebrity to suddenly public enemy number one who deserves death right now in the moment? What is Luke trying to tell us? You see, this 
story, Luke 14 through 31, is a frontispiece to the Gospel of Luke. When you think about a frontispiece, you need to think of like the cover jacket of a book that captures your attention and gives you an idea of where the book is heading. Right here, from the beginning, in Luke's Gospel, we see Jesus experience rejection. In fact, there's two rejections taking place in this story. The first rejection is Jesus rejects their attempts to localize his messianic mission. He's not the hometown hero in the sense of he's not the local savior of Nazareth. He is the savior of the world. And while his salvation is meant for Nazareth too, he needs to go much, much bigger than this hometown because there's a much bigger world out there. The second rejection is this. Nazareth rejects Jesus because he doesn't hit their talking points. His gospel doesn't conform to what they want to hear. And that's the thing that we need to understand as we move forward in Luke. We're talking here about a gospel revolution. And we understand that anytime a revolution takes place, there are going to be those who stand in opposition to the revolution because they don't want a change in status quo. But that's what the gospel does. Anytime the gospel goes somewhere, the gospel asks for there to be a change in the status quo. So now we need to unpack a couple of principles from this story that help us to see how the gospel works. Uh, by virtue of this being a gospel re uh, revolution, we see this first implication, and that's this. The gospel will not be made to conform to our consensus beliefs. Why is that? Well, it's because the gospel is not man's message. The gospel is God's message. We don't get to set the terms and conditions upon the gospel. God is the one that tells us what his message is, and he sets the terms and conditions upon the message. That's why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says this, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It doesn't line up with their worldview system. It doesn't line up with the things that they're used to hearing. Tim Keller has said this. He says, Every culture hostile to Christianity holds to a set of common sense, consensus beliefs that automatically make Christianity seem implausible to people. These are what philosophers call defeater beliefs. Now listen closely to this next part. A defeater belief is belief A that if true means that belief B can't be true. You hear what he's saying there? There are certain values, cultural values, that are like a shut-off valve to the brain. That when we hear one of those values offended, it shuts our ears off to hearing the gospel. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. Just recently, I was up in Boston 
listening to John Stone Street. He's the president of the Colson Center. And, and he said a line that's going to stick with me for a long time. He said this, the most dangerous ideas are not the ideas that we argue, they are the ideas we assume. There are the ideas that are so entrenched in our thought life, in our worldview, that we don't even question them. We don't even entertain an objection to them. I was powerfully reminded of this. I shared a couple of weeks ago that while in Israel, I, I visited the Holocaust Museum. And while there, I picked up this book called Dancing on a Powder Keg. And it's about the life of Ilsa Weber. Now, the story is portrayed through a series of letters and poems that Ilsa wrote while she was in uh, Czechoslovakia and then finally found herself in Theronstadt, um, the uh, concentration camp. Now, she was there with her young son, Tommy, and they eventually lost their life. The, the beautiful thing about these letters and poems is it just gives you a picture of the vicissitudes that the Jews faced while this uh, assumption, this dangerous assumption was happening in their world. The dangerous assumptions wasn't just the, the hatred that was coming out of the Nazi party, but it was also an anti-Semitism that was broadly throughout Europe. Did you know that when the Jews were trying to flee out of the areas that were putting them into concentration camps, that many of the surrounding countries would not receive them? And so they had to stay where they were. Now, in the case of Ilsa, Willie, her sons Hannerly, and Tommy, they were living in Czechoslovakia. They had moved over from Germany. And as the Germans took over Czechoslovakia, the regulations started becoming more hostile. So first they send off their son Hannerly and on a train, and he goes to live with friends. But through the letters, you see for Ilsa and Willie that it's impossible for them to get out of their situation. They tried all different kinds of things, Europe, Latin America, Palestine. They were stuck and they eventually became victims of the Holocaust. I was deeply met, uh, moved as I read these poems because through writing these poems, some 60 poems were found in the concentration camp. Ilsa was resisting the victimization of the Holocaust. Let me just read one of these poems to you. This one is called um, Therenstadt Lullaby. Hush abye, children. Sleep, don't pine. Boy from Bohemia, girl from the Rhine. Though you arrived here sadly shorn, wrenched from the land where you were born, now you sleep side by side, endowed with dreams where laughter is allowed. Far from all suffering, yours and mine, hushabye, children, sleep, don't pine. What do you see behind your eyes, you serious boy, little Viennese? Your father lost in the camp, now dead, each night sat on the side of your bed. You are still young, you must let go. We try to be kind to you, and so, to help you bear it, give your grief ease, sleep, serious boy, little Viennese. Sleep, you little ones, blonde or brunette, from Bohemia, Moravia, 
Try to forget your exile from all over Dutchland, snatched away, sick, hungry until you reached. This place of misery shared our woe. God willing, you shall live and grow. Now we are wavering, troubled, forlorn, but every night is followed by dawn. Hushabye, children, it will end. This nightmare gloom, new world, new friend, will greet us. Manacles fall away, hardship forgotten on that day. When you're made whole, diseases cured, hunger appeased, your life restored. You will struggle forward hand in hand, and for home and heritage, you take your stand. Here's the thing. The dangerous assumptions of the World War II era Europe are visible to us today. We, we can look at those assumptions and there's a level of moral clarity where we can say along these lines, how could this have happened? That was wrong. We have the same level of moral clarity around the pre-Civil War era America where we can look into that culture and say, look, what you did wasn't right. It was wrong for you to think that it was okay to enslave another human being, let alone to think that by enslaving them, you were doing something good for them. So those ideas, what I'm trying to say to you this morning, those ideas are not dangerous to you. But what ideas are dangerous to you? They're the ideas that we can't see. The ideas that we are so close to that we can't see them for what they are. What are some of these dangerous assumptions? What are some of these so-called common sense beliefs that, that make us see Jesus' gospel as implausible? I'm going to share a couple of them with you, and I'm going to hold those up next to what the gospel says so you can see how they stand in opposition to one another. One of the consensus beliefs is something like this. Only ignorant people believe in miracles. But what does the gospel say? Well, the gospel stands upon a miracle. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, the gospel isn't true. Or another one, you can't say there is only one true religion. But the gospel says that there is only one way to God, and it's through Jesus. In fact, God would not have sent Jesus if there was any other way for people to be saved. Or what about this one? You can't call me a sinner. Who says what is right or wrong? Well, the gospel says that God not only calls us sinners, he declares it. And that's a judicial term. Uh, he has tried us. We have been found wanting. The gospel also says that God is the ultimate arbiter of truth. He decides what is right and what is wrong. Or about this, I don't like what the Bible has to say about, and then you kind of fill in the current hot-button issue, whether it would be LGBT issues, abortion, wealth, racism, etc. Now, listen very closely to this next point. It doesn't matter which side of the political aisle you are on. Did you hear that? It doesn't matter which side of the political aisle you are on. This revolutionary gospel will challenge one, if not many, of your common sense beliefs. So the question we need to ask ourselves is how do we break out of these assumptions? Well, here's the second implication. It's this. 
to hear the gospel, we must be open to an outside perspective. Why do I need an outside perspective? We've already been talking about this, haven't we? Some of the ideas that are dangerous to us are dangerous to us because we're so close to them. We can't see. And so we need an outside perspective to expose the dangerous idea to us. Uh, Just recently, I was driving along with one of our members, Lars Jensen. And Lars is a great guy. He he was uh, raised in Germany. His wife, Lori, uh, went over, um, I think he was in an exchange program. Anyway, they met and she stole his heart and then brought him back here and stole him away for us because we needed Lars at this church. That's right, woohoo. And um, one of the things that Lars said to me that struck me was this. He said, you know, one way that I became more aware of my own German heritage and culture was I read a book written by an outsider who was trying to attempt to explain German culture to other outsiders. I would love to read that book on American culture. I've just got to say, I would love to read that book. And he said, when I, when I studied that book, I was able then to go back to Germany and see exactly what they were talking about. Now we've got to bring in a theological concept. The, the concept is revelation. You see, revelation, I would submit to you, is the ultimate outside perspective. Uh, if we were to define revelation, most simply put, revelation is God's perspective. It's how God sees things. It's how God sees himself. And God is the only being in all of the universe who has a perfect and full understanding of who he is. And he's the only one who can understand him. And so if we want to know about God, God has to tell us about God. But the second side of that coin is it's an explanation to us of how God sees us. You see, he isn't too close. He's not blind to the dangerous assumptions. In fact, he created us and he imbued this universe with truth. And so if I want to understand truth, I have to go to a source where truth is being revealed. And I would submit to you that it is God's word, the Bible, where he has revealed these things to us. And what does God tell us? Well, he says that I created you for relationship with me and that relationship was broken because of your sin. That sin has caused you to be lost. You can't fix this problem. You can't do enough good to fix the problem. I can only fix the problem. And the way that I have chosen to fix the problem is I have sent my one and only Son into the world to die for you. And now we come to the third implication. And it's this. To trust the Gospel, we must engage in self-reflection. Listen very closely to this next sentence. We will continue to hold our dangerous assumptions if we aren't willing to allow our assumptions to be challenged. 
We have to engage in dialogue around our assumptions. Let's just turn some of those questions and ask them differently that I asked earlier. How can you be certain that there is more than one way to God? And does it make sense to say that while various religions make truth claims and those truth claims actually clash with one another, that those could be true all at the same time? Or what about this? Why is it plausible to think that I make truth? If that was the case, truth would become a very subjective thing, and yet we see that there are certain moral truths that transcend any one culture. Couldn't it be that those truths came from a God who is the truth maker? And maybe even asking the question, am I committed to a sliding scale of morality because if I get down to the heart of the matter, I just want to make the decisions that I want to make. Or what about this? Have you deeply, meaningfully engaged with the sound, rational conversations around some of those hot-button issues and why Christians are saying the things they're saying? I remember while I was a youth pastor, I had a conversation, a spiritual conversation with a young lady, and she basically came up to me, and we were talking about the gospel, and I was asking her, have you made a decision of faith? And, and she said, you know what, I don't, I, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I've come to this conclusion, I don't like what the Bible says about homosexuality. Therefore, I refuse to believe that any of it is true. Now, as I responded to her, I said, look, I, I appreciate where you're coming from. I, I think that you've thought about your position. But would you be willing to sit down with me just for a minute and, and look at what the Bible has to say and, and understand why it says that? And her response was, no. I don't want to hear it. I mean, that's it. Conversation over. There would be no healthy dialogue. There would be no self-reflection. And sadly, now she's in a position like these Nazarenes. Instead of giving Jesus an audience and our thoughts and asking good questions of Him, we're ready to throw Him off the cliff. So here's a bigger question that only we can answer. Do you only want a religion that is simply an echo chamber? You know what an echo chamber is, right? You, you say something and then the room responds back with what you just said and it starts bouncing off the walls and you hear what you think all over the room. Do you want a Jesus who merely parrots back to you what you already think? Or do you want a Savior who can tell you about God's ways and how you can be made right with God? Friends, I want the second. And I've got to say this, if you're engaging with people, if you're a Christian and you're engaging with people and having conversations and, and maybe they hold to a defeater belief, be patient with them. Be compassionate. Be loving. Remember, it, it, it's not something intrinsically good in you that caused you to trust Jesus. God worked a miracle in your heart so that you would 
listen and be open to Jesus. How, how do I become open to Jesus? Well, we've talked about that. I engage in uh, listening to an outside perspective and in self-reflection. Uh, so we bring this all together by asking this question or looking at what Jesus said in his message. Do you remember those four types of people that he was talking about? He talked about what? The poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. Now listen to this. I do not believe that a person can be saved by Jesus if they do not view themselves in this way. You cannot be saved if you do not acknowledge that you are spiritually poor and in need of a Savior. You cannot get saved if you think that you're not captive to sin or that you're blind to God's ways unless God reveals His ways to you. You cannot be saved if you do not understand that you are oppressed and in need of a Messiah. It's the only way, and the only way I can understand that is if, again, I'm open to outside perspective and self-reflection. So, there was a British church that held common services and a part of the feature of this church that made it so dynamic is people were coming into the church from all different backgrounds and walks of life. Uh, one example of this was one uh, Sunday evening, they were doing communion, and the pastor looked out, and they would come forward to the communion altar and pray. And as he saw people praying, he observed that there was a burglar, a former burglar, kneeling at the altar right next to a judge of the Supreme Court of England. And here's what made it even crazier. The judge was the guy who sent the burglar to prison for seven years. And the burglar, upon leaving prison, heard the gospel, trusted Jesus as Savior. So the judge and the pastor are walking home together and the judge looks over at the pastor and he says, did you notice who I was praying next to? The pastor nodded his head and the judge said, what a miracle of grace. The pastor said, indeed, that is a miracle of grace. The judge paused and he said, well, which one are you referring to right now? The pastor said, well, of course, the burglar. The judge says, I wasn't thinking of him. I was thinking of myself. So the pastor says, well, explain this. And he said, okay. When you think about the burglar sitting next to me, it doesn't surprise me that he would understand his need for grace. He had gone through most of his life. He had committed a lot of mistakes. He had sinned against God. And he spent time in prison thinking about that regularly so that when he heard the gospel for the first time, he clearly could come to terms with the fact that he needed a Savior. But think about my situation. I was raised in a good home. I was taught from birth to be a gentleman, that there was a code of conduct. My parents prayed with me regularly. We went to church. I went on to get a degree from Oxford and then to pass the bar exam. I became a judge in the country of England. I believed that I was everything that I needed to be. I didn't understand that I was a sinner in need of grace. Pastor, 
It was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I'm the greater miracle. And friend, what I'm saying to you this morning is anytime one of us lays down our so-called common sense consensus beliefs and we see the grace of God and our need for the grace of God, that is the greater miracle. So what does that mean in terms of response? Well, this morning if you believe that you need Jesus, today is the day to trust Him as your Savior. But maybe you're just starting to ask questions, and I think that's a, uh, an awesome thing. I'd love to sit down with you sometime, or one of the elders, you can email me, rob at ostrovobaptist.org. I'd love to sit down with you and talk about your questions. I think that's how we move along in faith. It's so important for our movement in faith. The main thing we're saying is this. Keep asking. Keep responding to Jesus. Let me pray and we'll uh, 